What we learned here is love tastes bitter when it's gone. Past yourself, forget the light, things look dirty when it's on. Funny how it comes to pass that all the good slips away And there's no one around you can remember being good to you Shame, shouldn't try you, come and step by you And open up more shame, shame, shame I have no idea how this is going to go. This is probably the least prepared message I've ever delivered that I can remember. So we're just going to have to throw the weed in the wind and see where it blows. But what I want to do is, this morning I want to cast a vision, and then tomorrow morning I'm going to get super practical. And I perceive that this fellowship is entering into a new season, a new direction, and, you know, I talk about the seasonal nature of the church and finding organic church. I talk about it a lot, but, you know, we have to discern the season. And if you don't discern the season and move with the season and you stay in the season that you've been in, what, what happens is everything gets old and it gets routine and you get tired of it and you get wore out. You know what I mean? That's why we have to move with the cloud and move with the season. And when you move into a new season, this is important now, when you move into a new season, and let's say you focus on one thing, because usually when you move into a new season, the focus changes. When you focus on that one thing, you may for a time neglect some other things. But after that season's over, and you move into a new season, the season that just ended, something of it will be built into the DNA of the church, and it will still carry forward. You might not be totally focused on it 100% like you are during that season, but an aspect of it will still be part of the church's DNA. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I think as we talk more it will, and in the future it will. So I want to cast a vision this morning and tomorrow, get very, very practical, so I would encourage you to bring notebooks tomorrow because you're going to have to write things down to revisit them later as a group and make some decisions. I just want to read a few passages of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.26. This is before the fall, of course. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them rule over all of these things, including the creeping things. And it is good to know that we have dominion over creeps. <laughs> 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, keep it in line. If it gets out of line, bring it back into line. And rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right. Now let's uh, look at... Luke 4.18. And I guess I would say to you that what I'm going to read here would be good for you to mark as kind of a landmark passage for this new season in your life as a fellowship. Luke 4.18. Now this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He has just been baptized in water. He's been led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. 
And now he goes into the synagogue. He stands up to read. He reads from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now that is referring to the year of Jubilee, which I will talk about a little later. He closed the book, gave it to the attendant. All the eyes of the synagogue were on him. And they, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, wow. Is this not Joseph's son? What is he talking about? Okay, Acts 10, 10.38. Acts 10.38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power how he went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, I want to focus on one statement in this passage. He went about doing good. Doing good. I want to revisit that later. But for some people, that is a cuss word, doing good, meaning that they attribute that to legalism, uh, they attribute that to religious duty, they attribute that to being religious, but it tells us Jesus went about doing good. Luke says in the book of Acts. Now let's look at uh, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Yes, he is new every morning, but he doesn't change. What he was, what he did in the first century when he took on flesh is what he does and what he is today. He's no different. Let me lay a groundwork for what I want to share. In February of 2009, I wrote an article which was posted on my blog uh, entitled, The Problem of Mental Filters. And in it, I introduced the idea that when people hear a message or they read a book or an article, and we all do this, there is a tendency to filter that message through their own experience. So like, for example, if I use the word doing good, some people in here will hear that as a legalistic command. Other people will hear that, as I said before, as a cuss word. Doing good, we're Christians, we don't do that. That's works. <laughs> That's trying to be righteous in your own power. That's being religious. No, doing good. Don't talk about that. We live by Jesus. Don't talk about doing good. You see what I'm saying? We filter things through our background. So I'm going to present a message to you, but I want to kind of clear the path so that you don't miss the nuance and you don't filter it through whatever background you have. And I'm going to do my best to try to break that. Okay. I'm going to give you a scenario. There are two Christians. One of them is in Alabama. The other is in Georgia. Right now, these two Christians, they don't even know each other. They're at a restaurant. And right now, they are talking to the waitress at a restaurant. One from Alabama and a restaurant there. One in Georgia and a restaurant there. Okay, now let's look at the one from Alabama. This Christian has been taught that his duty on earth is to get as many people 
converted to Christ as possible. So he is right now preaching the gospel, presenting the gospel to this waitress. In Georgia, we have a very similar thing going on. In fact, it looks exactly the same. This Christian is presenting the gospel to his waitress. They're both males. On the surface, it looks identical. But if you peel it back, you will discover it's very different because the motivation that is behind them sharing the gospel with the waitress is very different. The source where they're driving the, the power and the energy and the wisdom to share the gospel and even how they're presenting it is totally different. Okay, So let's look at the person from Alabama. He has been taught since he's been a Christian that his duty, his religious duty is to convert people and to share the gospel. His motivation is to make God happy. And he feels like if he does not share the gospel with this person, God will be angry with him. So his motivation is really religious duty and guilt. And fear of condemnation. That's his motive. Okay? The source in which he is doing it is his own natural energy. He has received training on how to speak the gospel to people. He went through evangelism explosion. And he's, he's been very diligent. He's been very diligent with that. And so he believes he's very good at it. He believes he has it down. You know, he's got the four laws down or whatever it is he's using. He has a technique. So the source is himself. Georgia. Same thing's happening. This person is sharing the gospel with his waitress. But the motive is totally different. He didn't go in there to share the gospel. In fact, it never occurred to him to share the gospel with this waitress. But something happened in the course of the conversation that a door opened and this person is attuned to see the Lord wherever the Lord is working. He's looking for what is the Father doing? What is Jesus doing? And he sees an open door and his spiritual instincts motivate him to share something of Jesus that he knows that has changed his life with this waitress. And so the door opens and he walks through it and he has absolutely no confidence in his ability to lead anybody to the Lord. He knows he can't do it. He's just following the life within him. And it's very natural. He's following his spiritual instincts. And he's very dependent. As he's talking to her, he's saying, Lord, what do I say here? He's very dependent. He knows he cannot do anything. And he doesn't put the woman under condemnation. And what comes through his words is love. Now, two scenarios, they're both doing the same thing. On the surface, it looks identical. But if you peel it back, it's totally different. Do you see that? Do you see the difference? And what's going to happen, interestingly, none of these women, both of them are women waitresses, as I'm telling the story, neither of them are going to make a decision for Jesus that day. The one who has been preached to by the gentleman in Alabama, she's going to forget the incident ever happened. To her, she's going to walk away with, well, this is a religious evangelical, it's his job to recruit me. That's what she gets from him. And so she forgets about it. This other woman does not come to the Lord that day either, but something has been planted in her. She has just been nudged a little bit to use Leonard Sweet's term, she's been nudged just a little bit toward Christ. There's been a residue left with her, and there's been an impression that 
wow, this person seems very genuine. Something has really happened to them. And she may not think of it for a long time, but someone else will come along her path and nudge her a little further and she will remember what happened. Whether she remembers or not, the impact is still there. You see? You're going to hear me speak about things this morning and tomorrow morning. I am not talking about what happened in Alabama. I am not talking about duty. I am not talking about guilt. I am not talking about being religious. And I'm certainly not talking about doing anything in your own strength or power. So, sisters and brothers, do not filter what I say through that lens. I'm talking about this other thing. I'm talking about the life of Jesus Christ, who is the same today, yesterday, and forever, and who happens to have taken up residence in you. Okay? So I hope that helps. I hope that clears away some of the obstruction that may be there with, in terms of filters. Okay. Let's go back to Genesis. And we have the creation account. And what is often missed about creation is that creation, when God created the earth in seven days, and even when he said it is finished, the creation itself was still in process. Because God told Adam to tend the garden. Remember? And he called Adam and his wife to exercise dominion over the whole earth. And the word dominion has to do with the word kingdom. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God ruling the earth from heaven. We're talking about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And what the Garden of Eden was, it was an overlap between heaven and earth. It was an intersection between God's space and man's space on the earth. And God's will was being done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's what we see in the Garden of Eden. But it was a creation project. It wasn't a finished deal. Yes, God finished his end of it. But now Adam was to tend to the garden. And then he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. So it wasn't God's intention that you know you had this beautiful garden and it just stayed there wonderful and beautiful and they just enjoyed the garden and that was it. No, the garden was to be extended. They were to be fruitful and multiply. The garden was to grow and fill all things. This is very important because God's project was to cover the whole earth. That's why he said, and fill the earth. Fill the earth with my image. Take dominion over all things. It was something in process. It wasn't completed from Adam's standpoint. Well, what happened was the fall. And tragedy struck, and man and woman and children all fell. And the garden was closed off, and now you had, you had what you have on the earth today, and that is corruption, broken relationships, sin, wickedness, injustice, lack of peace, etc. And what God did was He chose a man through whom a family would come through whom a nation would be born. And that man was Abraham. And what God said to Abraham was a promise. He promised him something through a covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. He made a covenant with him. But in the covenant, this is in Genesis 12, he echoed what he said to Adam. 
He essentially said, you will be fruitful, you will multiply, I'm going to give you a piece of land, I'm going to give you territory, and you and your descendants are going to care for that land, just as Adam cared for the garden. You and your descendants are going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, what he said to Adam. And what God was wanting to do was bring in a new creation through Abraham and his descendants, which was the nation of Israel. He was trying to undo the fall and start over again and remake his world where his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, just like it was in the garden. You see? And he said something else. Not only did he say, I will bless you, you'll be fruitful, you'll multiply, the land will be yours, but he said something else that we have to pay attention to. He said, through you, through you, Abraham, through you, your seed, Israel, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, I am going to fill the whole earth with what was the garden, my new creation. I'm going to remake the world the way I want it to be made through you and it will bless all the nations of the earth. So Abraham had children and from the children he had the nation of Israel. And this was his people. And all throughout scripture we find different things said about Israel. One was Israel would be a kingdom of priests. In other words, through Israel, the kingdom of God would come on earth. Israel would be a servant. He said, my servant Israel. Israel was to be a servant to the nations. Israel was to be, according to Isaiah, the light of the world. All of the pagan nations that were still in fallen corruption were to look at Israel, were to look at this nation where God's presence resided and the way they lived, and they were to see, oh, this is what it looks like when God, the God of heaven, is in charge of the world. This is the light. This is how it works. This is what it looks like when God is in charge and He's calling the shots. And God gave Israel all of these laws to differentiate themselves from all the pagan nations. And one of the outstanding things throughout the laws, I mean, we think of the laws as bondage and, gosh, you can't do it. Yes. Okay, we understand we can't fulfill the law, but if you look at the law through a different lens, what you find in the laws that God gave Israel is that they all were toward bringing justice to the earth and peace and prosperity. And the poor were always helped in all the laws. Now, we can sit here and regurgitate many of them, but the stranger, the widow, the orphans were all cared for. The people who did not have land were taken care of. Even the strangers who were poor, when they harvested, they left the edges for the poor to come. Women were treated better under Israel's law than all the pagan nations. Very differently. If you compare it to the pagan way of life, it was a stark contrast. And then there was the year of Jubilee. Yes. And that's when every 50 years, everyone would start over and have a clean start. And it was a major statement against oppression of all sorts. All the slaves would be free. All the debts would be forgiven. Everyone who lost land would be given back to them. It was awesome. A level playing field. And so we see God's desire to flood His world that He created with peace, prosperity, justice for all, which sounds familiar, liberty, and justice for all throughout the whole world. God wanted Israel 
to be the pilot project to remake the world and bring new creation into the earth after the fall. To bring us back to the garden. You following this? Well, something happened. Israel failed. And it's important for us to understand how they failed. They forgot their mission. They forgot their purpose. They focused on the first part of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless you. Those that curse you, I will curse. Those that bless you, I will bless. The land is yours. Be fruitful and multiply. They took that, but they forgot and neglected the second part. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They put that one aside. And they kept the blessing of God for themselves. They enjoyed the blessing of God for themselves. They got the idea that it was all about them. You know, if you have a river that is flowing, and that river is free to move all throughout, and it touches all of the plant life that it comes in contact with and gives life to, if you have that river, and rivers are meant to flow out, and you go back to its source, and you cut it off so it can't flow out, you know what happens? That water becomes dead. And that's what Israel did. She was supposed to be a light to all the nations. She was supposed to bless all the nations. And instead, she kept all the blessing to herself. She forgot about the world around her. She put mirrors around the light and kept it looking at one another. And because of that, Israel, in a spiritual sense, died. And the kingdom of God did not come to earth. God's will was not being done on earth as it was in heaven. And that story, that brief story, is the plot line, it's the narrative that is told and retold throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the prophets kept saying, you know, you can read it in Isaiah, you can read it in Amos, you can read it in other prophets where they say, you know what, you have forgotten, you've lost sight of your mission. And you've made it all about you. And not only that, but you have taken on the pagan ways and become a very unjust people and you're treating each other the way that the pagans treat one another. That's the narrative, that's the setup that brings us to the time when Jesus came. And when Jesus comes into the earth, he does something very interesting. One of the, one of the early things he does in his ministry is he announces, as we read, about what Isaiah said has now come to pass. The year of Jubilee is now being proclaimed through me. And he selects 12 men to be his first followers. Why 12? Because he is reconstituting a new Israel. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus chooses 12 men. He is reconstructing a new Israel. And then he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, it is a challenge and a reminder to Israel to return back to original calling. He says, you are the light of the world. You are supposed to be a city set on a hill. Don't hide the light. Put it on a hill where you can see it. And he talks about all the other things that Israel forgot about their neighbor about loving those who are oppressed. And, and then you look at his ministry, and if you look at Jesus' ministry very carefully, Luke says in Acts, he went about doing good 
If you look at his ministry carefully, what you discover is that what the prophets all said would happen in the future. And in the future, what God had in the garden will be restored and returned. In the future, God will recreate the world and there will be an overlap of heaven and earth, just as it was in the garden, that what is in the heavens will come down to the earth. The kingdom of God will fill the earth. We see this in Revelation 21 and 22, right? The kingdom of the heavens penetrates the earth and now heaven and earth become one again. And you have a replay of the garden, right? But the prophets predicted that. They said in Habakkuk that the glory of the Lord, the image of the Lord, the nature of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah prophesied that there will come a day when there will be a new creation and the wolf will lie down with the lamb. There will be no more war. There will come a day where the peace of the Lord will fill the earth. There will be no more poverty. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. The prophets predicted this would come in the future. And when Jesus came, when he entered into the earth, one of the first things he began to announce is that the kingdom of God has come here now. The kingdom of God is here now. God's will, which is being done in the heavens, is now come to earth. And if you look at his ministry, what you find is this, that in Jesus, in his miracles, in his acts, in what he did, the future kingdom of God was breaking into the present. The future, God's future, where the curse would be overturned, where human suffering would be alleviated, all of that was arriving in present form in Jesus. So when he was healing the sick, he was showing forth, it was a signpost that there would be healing and there would be wellness and there would be no sickness and disease, there would be no suffering. When he cast out demons, he was a signpost to the future. That in God's future kingdom, there will be no more torment. When he raised the dead, it was a signpost to the future that there would be no more death. It was happening presently in Jesus' ministry. The future was breaking into the present. And what God wanted in the garden was happening again in his ministry. He was a friend of sinners. You know, he went to, as it were, the lost. He was setting captives free. He was delivering people. Most of his ministry was to the poor and the oppressed. He was being the new Israel, caring for those outcasts, caring for the marginalized. I mean, if you look at Jesus' ministry, just study Nazareth. That's where God chose his own son to be. You talk about poverty. I mean, your Lord was raised in abject poverty. And he was not a wealthy man. He was a blue-collar worker, basically. And his parents were very poor. It's very clear. You know, they had to offer turtle dove for the offering. I mean, they, Joseph and Mary, were not wealthy people. And he went to those kind of people, you know. And the religious elite and the wealthy and the powerful despised him. He threatened them and their power structures, and eventually they put him to death. But he was preaching the kingdom of God. God's will being done in heaven is now happening on earth. And here's what it looks like. He was enacting it. He was showing what it looked like by his healings, by his doing good, by his receiving the rejected and healing the oppressed and standing with the outcasts and so forth. And he caught major flack for it from the Pharisees. You remember in the Sadducees, the religious elite didn't like that. That was disrupting. You're not supposed to mix with those people. But this is what Jesus showed us. He showed us what it looked like when God's in charge. And he came to Israel, his own people, to remind them of their mission and to challenge them to repent and to be the light of the world that they were called to be, and to remember 
but they did not exist for themselves but remember Abraham's promise the promise to Abraham through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed well they put him to death and we know what happened on that cross was a lot more than a carpenter an artisan being put to death he destroyed the power of evil on the cross that which came into the planet through sin Jesus Christ overturned on the cross and then we come to the resurrection and the resurrection has so much more meaning than so many of us have been taught or, or what we realize but when Jesus Christ rose again from the dead brothers and sisters the new creation began on Easter Sunday the new creation was launched Jesus proclaimed it he showed it in signs and wonders and in his acts of doing good but when he rose again from the dead the new creation actually broke into the planet and we have a hint of this not only was he raised again on the eighth day the day after the Sabbath the day after creation week the eighth day a new series but he was raised in a garden and Mary mistook him for the gardener who was a gardener Adam was a gardener he was in the garden it's the reversal of the fall we're back to the garden and it is a new day it is a new creation God is remaking his world and then when he ascended into heaven he said to his disciples all authority all dominion has now been given to me and he ascended into heaven and anytime in the Roman world when an emperor died and ascended it meant that they were now divine and that they were now regarded as having all authority and when Jesus ascended it meant that he now truly was the Lord of the whole world the new Emperor new creation has come it's begun in the resurrection and now Jesus of Nazareth not Caesar <laughs> but Jesus of Nazareth is now not only the Messiah proven to be the Messiah proven by his resurrection but he's the Lord of the whole world now here is the interesting thing brothers and sisters we are now living in the parenthesis between the inauguration of the new creation when Jesus rose again from the dead and the ascension of him being Lord of the world the true Lord of this world taking all authority and power we're living between the parenthesis of that and the future when the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth and it will be evident and there will be no more curse and the Lordship of Jesus will be manifested for every tongue to confess and every knee to bow and every person will know it and submit to it we're living in that parenthesis and when you when you look at the book of Acts what you discover is that the message that the Apostles brought forth was not a message of a new experience to have they didn't go around to the different cities saying well we got this new experience we want you to have another were they saying you know what you're all going to hell here's how to go to heaven that wasn't the message the message was that there is a new emperor now a new Lord has taken the throne and we are his emissaries going out to all the cities of the Roman Empire to announce to herald that the new Emperor is on the throne and his name is Jesus of Nazareth and now here is who he is submit and give your allegiance to him that was the message of the New Testament and everywhere it was preached it brought conflict with the powers that be 
when both the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders heard that there was a new emperor and they were saying that Jesus, this one who died and, and they were claiming rose again from the dead, was a new emperor, it was treason. They were presenting a new king. Read Acts 17. Paul was preaching a new king. You see? But they lived in the reality of it. The early churches recognized that they were the new Israel. That they were the light of the world now. They recognized that they were the seed of Abraham. Paul says it in Galatians 3. And that the blessing of Abraham was now given to them. And the promise of Abraham was now given to them. And that promise was not just, you will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image, but through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Brothers and sisters, the early Christians understood this and they lived in the presence of the future. They lived in the presence of the future. Just as Jesus Christ brought God's future into the present by His activity, when He was raised from the dead, the future, a bit of the future, came to earth in His resurrection. The new creation begun. I don't care what you see out there and I don't care what you see on the news. The reality is the new creation has begun. Jesus is risen. The new creation has begun. And I don't care what you see in the presidential elections or the kings of the world or the politics of the earth. Jesus of Nazareth is this world's true Lord. And He is ascended into heaven and He is the Lord. And it is the church that has the eyes to see that. Even though physically we can't see around us, you can't tell me that Jesus is Lord of this earth. Yes, He is. But we're living in the parenthesis. We're in the parenthesis between the kingdom of God filling the whole earth and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing and Resurrection Sunday when Jesus Christ brought in the new creation. We're living in the presence of the future right now. But here's where it gets really practical. What now has God called us to do? Well, that's easy. To recognize we're the light of the world and to keep the light in these walls and to enjoy the light ourselves and keep the river here inside this room so it doesn't flow out anywhere else. Right? That's what Israel did. No. That's not what the early Christians did. The early Christians, yes, they had community. And you, you saw the kingdom of God among them by the things we talked about this morning, Milt, and I talked about yesterday, last night. Reconciliation, forgiveness, women being honored, brokenness, sharing of the wealth, taking care of one another. Yes, but, brothers and sisters, the river is to flow out. Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good. And when you read, I'm going to do this for you tomorrow, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to give you a totally new way of looking at the word good works or good deeds. Because some of us have been poisoned to think that that's bad. Or we've attached a legalism to it. And yes, some Christians have made it legalistic. Remember my analogy of the guy in Alabama talking to the waitress versus the guy in Georgia? Hey, two different motivations, two different sources. But brothers and sisters, when you see what good works means, you will recognize this, that it really gets down to this. The life of Jesus Christ in us is the same life that existed on planet earth in his body when he was on the earth it's the same life and if he went to the poor and the oppressed 
And if He preached the Gospel to the poor, and if He set at liberty those who were blind and those who were in bondage, and He preached the acceptable year of the Lord, He was the Jubilee, then brothers and sisters, He's still doing that today. Because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's no different. And here's what I have found. I've talked a lot about spiritual instincts. The life of Christ in us, which, by the way, has another term. The life of Christ in you has another term. You know what it is? The Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit. That's another way of saying the life of Christ. The life of Christ in us, the Spirit within us, which is the Spirit of Jesus. When He rose again from the dead, He became a life-giving Spirit. Gives us spiritual instincts. If there was someone who knocked on the door, who was needy, didn't have a place to stay, didn't have any food, was hungry, the spiritual instincts of every Christian in this room would want to help them in some way. The person that would shut the door on them and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you, is totally not in touch with their spiritual instincts. Amen. They would be saying no to the life of the Lord in them. I have noticed that bad teaching, wrong teaching, has the effect of deadening the spiritual instincts that we have. It deadens them. We can't hear them. If I came here and I preached to you, you know what? God doesn't really care about people in the world. God's sovereign. He's going to save who's going to save. The poor are not your concern. Don't worry about them. God will take care of that. You just focus on your good meetings. Have good meetings. That's what God wants. Get along with each other. That, that's all He wants. He doesn't really care. It's not your concern. If you were taught that, you know what would happen? You would not recognize your spiritual instincts or you would be in conflict. So one of the responsibilities of those who minister Christ and minister the Word of God is to help awaken those spiritual instincts and get you in touch with them. You know, And that's why bad teaching is so toxic because it deadens those instincts. You're not able to hear them. You can't process them. So what I'm trying to do here is awaken your spiritual instincts to do this. You, brothers and sisters, just like every other expression of the body of Christ, is called to be the light of the world. A city set on a hill. And we are here to discover Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you something. You discover him in numerous ways. You discover him in the scriptures. All scripture testifies of me. You discover him through one another because he's in us. You discover him in your meetings when you all are sharing this wonderful Lord that lives inside of us and sharing your portion of what he has shown you. We discover him when we hear others minister him. But I want to tell you something else. We also discover him in the faces of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. If you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And not only that, but we're called to display him. We're called to display him to one another. We're called to display him to the Father. We're called to display him before principalities and powers, but we're also called to display him to the world. Now, you're thinking I'm going to tell you, okay, Give us an evangelistic program. Okay? I'm not going to do that. Because that's not what this is about. This is about getting in touch with your spiritual instincts and following Jesus Christ who is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And Luke 4.18 on to 21 is just as in effect. Because we're His body on the earth. What He did then, we continue. You understand? Forgive me for mentioning this, but I have to. This message is not complete. There is a book entitled, From Eternity to Here, and there is a chapter, chapter 27. It's called, What Does It Look Like? And there are four aspects of the church I talk about. One is communion, another one is corporate display, another one is community life, and another one is commission. 
And I'm talking to you right now about commission. Now what all churches on the planet, if you take them all, what they tend to do is pick one or two and then neglect the others. But God has called us to flesh out all four. And some of them are in season where we'll focus on one and one season we'll focus on another and another season, but they all should be operating in some measure. Okay? If it's not, then we don't want to make the mistake of Israel and hold the light within. Because, let me tell you something, if the river stays in, it will eventually die. I've seen a lot of groups self-destruct because they did not, they were actually taught, they were taught that God is not concerned about anybody else but them. They were taught that. The life of Jesus Christ is the same as it was in the first century. We're His body on earth. Now, we have to be careful because we don't want to go off into, you know, what some of us came out of, which is, you know, the whole name of the game is to get as many people saved as you want. You've got to go out and preach the gospel. You've got to go out. Some ministries, like, for example, that I've seen in my life, to the poor, for example, their whole thinking was, all right, the only reason why we're going to feed these people is so that they'll listen to us preach. So they actually said, we've got food. You know, they would go in a park. We've got food, but you've got to listen to us preach to you. And then they preach them under the table, you know, the, the gospel. And then they feed them. And so it's kind of like, okay, here's the hook. The food is the bait, you know. And brothers and sisters, we have not so learned Jesus Christ. Israel was a servant. Jesus was a servant. It's not about numbers. It's not about even what's going to happen at that moment. It's about releasing the life of Christ and letting him do his thing and he cares about people and he loves people and yes he wants people to know him but you know what sometimes it takes a lot of nudges the name of the game is not okay well let's finally get this person to heaven the name of the game is to just reveal Christ and let Christ live that's the name of the game what God does after that what God does beyond that we don't know that's up to him but what I'm trying to suggest to you is this and I guess here's my main point what we do in this life, when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to His will being done on earth as it is in heaven, whatever we do, whether it's sharing the Lord with someone else, whether it's sharing the Lord with someone here, whether it's feeding someone who is hungry, whether it's giving a homeless person the blanket, whether it's speaking to power, in some cases we may do that. The church did that in the first century. They spoke to power when power was violating the will of God. See, Jesus is Lord of this earth, and we're His emissaries. So He has all authority, and we have all authority. And we can speak to power and say, you're out of line here. As the church, we have that authority. Because we know who the real Lord is, see? You know, when Jesus sent out His disciples in, in Acts chapter 1, you read it, the, the disciples were confused. They said, well, is the kingdom going to come now? And uh, he basically said to them, well, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom has come, I'm paraphrasing, but not in the way you think. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, unto parts of the earth. He was essentially saying, I am the Lord now, and you are my emissaries, just like Caesar had his emissaries. And now you're going to bring the message that there's a new emperor throughout the earth. And sometimes we do that by verbalizing it. And our culture, a lot of people aren't ready to hear that or they associate it with the old Baptist gospel. Sometimes we just show it by serving, by giving, by loving, by pouring our life out. And Jesus often did that. He would give, he would pour out, he would serve without preaching them a message, because that's who he is. And it was a signpost of the coming kingdom. So my point here is this, that what you do in this life, the little things that you do in some way, and I don't understand how it works, 
in some way counts and will be part of the coming kingdom when the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's why Paul said at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the resurrection body. And that's our hope. We're going to be resurrected. God's not going to throw out the world. He's going to transform it. He's not going to discard it. He's going to transform it. He's going to do the same thing with your body too. He's not going to throw your body out. He's going to transform it. It will be new. It will be resurrected. It will be in glory just like Jesus. And at the very end of that resurrection, then he says, Brothers and sisters, don't be weary in well-doing. Don't give up. Keep on steadfast doing the work of the Lord for it is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's going to last. It's going to go into that other kingdom in some way. I'm encouraging you, and I would say, again, this message is not complete. Please read, if you have from eternity to here, chapter 27. I would like everyone to read it because it's the second part of this message, and I don't have time to do it for you. Chapter 27 from eternity to here. If you don't have that book, easy solution. Go on my blog, frankviola.org. And just the other day, I don't remember, it was this week, the Missio Dei. Who read You read it? The Missio Dei? Just look at the title. Just, just scroll down and you'll see the Missio Dei. It's 27, chapter 27 of From Eternity to Here. I think that will inspire you as well. But we have a task before us. We have a calling before us. It is to be light, for He is the light. And this is exciting because it gets us out of the salt shaker. This is exciting because we're going to see the Lord work not just here, but out there. All sorts of things from my past ring through my head. As I'm presenting what I believe to be the truth, then I hear all these preachers, Oh yes, and we're going to have 500 people, one to the Lord, and we're going to be feeding this many people. You see what I'm saying? That's the old mind. No, no, no. You know what? You may not bring anybody to Christ. That's not the name of the game. It's displaying Him. It's letting Him live through you. I don't care about numbers. I don't care. You know what? You will see Him. You will find Him in ways you never have. And you will see Him work. And even if it's to help somebody out who's having a rough time, you can say, the Lord was glorified. And maybe that person didn't even understand it was the Lord. But you know what? It was the Lord. And you know that. And we will be light. And we will be salt. Because we are the body of Christ. And he's still alive, and he's on the throne. He is the world's true Lord. And you know what? Maybe there's some metaphors you can think of that are movies or whatever, but I don't know if the matrix fits here. But, you know, we're talking about we have eyes to see what the world doesn't see. And that is the new creation has begun, and we're living in it. We're part of it. And number two, Jesus of Nazareth is the new emperor of the whole world. He has been installed. That ascension... Into heaven, he's installed as having authority over all the world. We have that authority now. We have dominion over all the earth. And we're called to take it. And see here, listen now, here's the enemy's strategy. To get you to live out of your fallen nature. To bicker and fight with one another. And to destroy whatever God has done. So that there is no expression of Christ. I mean, that's really what it is. So turn your eyes to Him, but also turn them outside, because He's there too. And uh, we're going to talk real practically tomorrow morning. But I hope that this inspires you a little bit to see that what God wants is bigger than what maybe we have imagined. And we're responsible for this little plot of ground that we live in, and the Lord wants to do more with us and through us than perhaps what we have considered doing. Basically, the church 
is called to the mission of God, his eternal purpose, which has four aspects. Communion, which is the bridal aspect of the church. Corporate display, community life, which is the house of God aspect and the family of God aspect. And then also commission, which is the body of Christ aspect. And I talked about the commission side. There is a tendency among groups that meet outside the organized church to fall off one side of the horse or the other. Either they're all about evangelism and all about going out into the world and reaching lost people. They're very shallow. There's no spiritual depth there. The community life is very thin. Or they fall on the other side of the horse and they have a very robust community life. They have spiritual depth, but they're insular and isolated and they're navel gazers and they're very content just to stare at that belly button just look at that belly button navel gazers you understand and they have no vision for the commission of Jesus Christ and so we looked at Luke 4 18 and on and, and that's what this song is about if you hear the message if you haven't heard it you'll see a lot of the, the statements come right out of the message what I want to do is flesh out what I shared with you yesterday, practical. Before I give you the practical suggestions, I did say to you I wanted to recontextualize and reframe the term good works or doing good or good deeds or do good in the New Testament. Because Christians come at that phrase from a couple of different angles. One angle is they come at it as, you know, this is a duty. This is something I have to do. If I don't do it, God's not going to be happy with me. Or they come at it from another perspective, which is sort of the reaction to that view, and say, well, God's not interested in me doing good. He just, I'm in Christ, I'm perfect, and I'm content, and everything is great. So all this do-good business, don't talk to me about that. I want to read a couple passages to you, but I want to throw some light on this word. Anytime you see do-good, or good deeds, or good works, recognize two things. One, good is a life form. Good is God. God is goodness. Okay? Remember when Jesus was confronted with someone who said, good master, he said, don't call me good. There's only one who's good. God is good. God is goodness. Goodness is a life form. Therefore, when the scripture says doing good, you could restate that to be the life of Jesus Christ, who is goodness. He's the embodiment of good. The life of Jesus Christ manifested through you to help people who are in suffering. I'm going to repeat that again. Good works, good deeds, doing good. In the New Testament language and in the New Testament mind means the life of Christ coming through you to help others in suffering. And if you read the passages in context, that's what it means all the time. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, that's what he was doing. In Jesus Christ, God's future arrived. And he was manifesting the presence of the future. And in his resurrection, he brought that future to earth. We are now in the new creation. It has begun. Most of the people who do not know Christ, and even many Christians, are not aware of that. And he is the true Lord of this world. That's the reality. And so now he's called the church to implement his victory, to work for the coming kingdom, 
The kingdom is here, but it's not yet. It's already, but it's not yet here. We live in the tension of the present, of the future. And so, here are some passages. Just listen to this. Acts 10.38, I read it yesterday. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with Him. Luke 6.9, Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand. And when He does, He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Well, Jesus just healed somebody who was suffering. And Jesus calls it doing good. Luke 6.33-35, And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? And He's talking about how we treat those who are not Christians. Acts 9.36, in the church of Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was also called Dorcas. And the scripture says of her, she was always doing good and helping the poor. Acts 10, when the angel appeared to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, he said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Galatians 2.10, Paul says to the twelve apostles, they asked him, when he had that meeting with the twelve apostles, they said, we want you to remember the poor. And Paul said, I'm very eager to do that. So helping the poor and doing good are often matched together in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to the household of God. Now what many Christians have done is they've taken that last clause, let us do good to the household of God, but forgot the other part, let us do good to all people. He's talking about people who aren't Christians. And he's writing to a church. Actually, he's writing to four churches. This is Galatians. That's Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.16, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. And Israel was to be a blessing to all the nations. Through you, I will bless all the nations. The church now has taken that place. Second Thessalonians 2.17, May God encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed. 1 Corinthians 15.58, he just talked about the resurrection in this passage, Paul did. And he doesn't end with saying, you know, lift up your heads to the future, God's going to raise you from the dead. While that's true, he ends with saying this, in light of the resurrection of Jesus, in light of the new creation, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor is not in vain. So what we do in serving others goes into that future kingdom. Not just as a reward, but in helping building that kingdom in some way. But again, it's the life of Christ. It's not us trying to do it on our own. And I talked about this yesterday. Romans 12:21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The life of Christ manifested through you. Ephesians 2.10 For we are God's workmanship, or masterpiece, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I just want to read that again. I don't think there needs any commentary to it. We are God's workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now again, don't tie good works to some kind of effort that you do on your own. Good works are like fruit falling off of a tree. You follow your spiritual instincts and it is a life of Christ through you that is giving you both the will, the desire, and the power to help those in suffering. 
And this is Jesus on the earth. This is what he did then. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He's still doing it. You see? Ephesians 4.28 He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. That's interesting. Here's the Christian work ethic. It's not just work to supply your own needs, but you work with your own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Isn't that interesting? And then Philippians 3.20-21, to and this is a very popular passage. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And many people think, well, that means that because our citizenship is in heaven, Paul is saying, you know, you don't belong to this planet. You're going to heaven, so don't get attached at all to anybody here. Don't really help anybody here. Don't worry about the earth at all. God's going to scrap it because our citizenship is in heaven. But actually, when you look at the whole letter in context and you look at the Greek word, Philippi was a Roman colony. That meant it was a Greek town far from Rome in the Roman Empire. And a Roman colony basically was the entire city was patterned after Rome. It looked like Rome. So when you went to this Greek city in Greece called Philippi and you visited there, you were basically visiting Rome. So when he says, your citizenship is in heaven, you belong to the heavenlies, and he's talking to the church in Philippi, and you read the whole context, he's saying, bring the culture of heaven, which you belong to and which you came from, bring it on the earth. God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, I am not of this world. And some people say, well, you know, he has nothing to do with this world. But it actually means in Greek, I talked about this in the message, Epic Jesus, it means I'm not from this world. But I'm certainly for it. Heaven is eventually going to come to earth. The garden is going to be revealed again. And so God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. Bring the culture of heaven to earth. Just a couple more. Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And so when we speak Christ to one another, when we share the Lord with one another, it's not just revealing Him who He is, but an aspect of Him and who He is, is what He's doing now in the earth. What He's doing now with people who are hurting and lost. What He's doing now with people who don't know Him. And again, I talked about filters yesterday. I am not talking about what I've heard all my life. You better get out there. There's people going to hell. And then we start counting. And then if we don't have enough, oh gosh, how many people did we get saved? I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about letting Christ live through you. Not just in this room. How's that? How about out there? Where there are people that Jesus loves and cares for. How about that? You know, that's all I'm talking about. Letting Christ live through. We're talking about living by the indwelling life of Christ. And also I said this. We discover Christ. The church, really, if you juice it down, is about displaying and discovering. Discovering and displaying. We discover the Lord. We pursue Him. And then we display Him, right? Well, how do we discover Him? We discover Him in the Scriptures. We discover Him in the Lord's Supper. We discover Him in one another we discover them in the meetings of the church but we also discover them in the faces of the oppressed and the poor and the hurting we discover them there too so we're, we're talking about a well-rounded mission we're talking about the fullness of the body of Christ and what what it does Hebrews 13:2. do not forget to entertain strangers show love be hospitable for by doing so some people have entertained angels without knowing it that's interesting. And then Hebrews 6.5, we presently taste the powers of the world to come. 
That is, we live in the presence of the future. 1 Peter 2.12 Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Now, the fundamentalist Christian looks at that, well, see, the pagans will see my good deeds. I don't cuss, I don't drink, I don't kick cats. And um, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't know I was going to say that. I don't go mixed bathing. No, no. Good deeds has to do with alleviating human suffering, suffering with people. You know, there's one missionary that said, Oh God, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Saints, if you take this seriously and you begin doing this, your heart's going to be broken. You're going to see stuff that's going to break your heart. But remember this, you're suffering with these people. The name of the game is not trying to get them to make a decision to Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about serving unconditionally, revealing Christ. Forget about the response. Don't worry about that. That's not in your hands. You let the Lord use you as a vessel of love. And I've seen stuff in dealing with people. You know, when I first left the institutional church, there was a season where we worked with homeless people. And it's very heartbreaking, some of the stuff you'll see. But you know what? His heart breaks every time the heart of a human that he created breaks. And we suffer with him. We suffer with them. Peter says, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, you know, there's something about the world when they see the church not just talking religious and not just fighting over theology, but actually helping people in need that they say, hmm, that's, I'm not a Christian, but that's good. There's something real here. You know what I'm talking about. I don't have to tell you. All right. All right, last one. James 1. 27, pure spirituality that God our Father accepts is this. Look at this. Pure spirituality that God our Father accepts is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Whoa. That's heavy. So, just to follow this up, please read the Missio Dei blog post. I also wrote an article on the blog. You might want to look at it because some of the brothers helped me put it together and the sisters uh, last year. They didn't know this. It's called Following Your Spiritual Instincts Regarding the Poor. Following Your Spiritual Instincts Regarding the Poor. And it's an article. It's actually an interview that Relevant Magazine did with me years ago. And I posted it on there. And afterwards, I give virtually, not all, but virtually all the scriptures on the poor and the oppressed from Old Testament to New Testament. And some of the brothers in this room and sisters in this room helped me put that together. Anyway, you might want to look at that too. And then finally, there's an interview I did with N.T. Wright on there, on his new book, Simply Jesus. And I would encourage you all to read that too, because it's awesome. And that book, Simply Jesus, if you want to read a book that's not written by Milt, or myself, uh, get simply Jesus by N.T. Wright, and it's very good. Okay, now well, here's the practical stuff, saints. So let the wind blow you across the big floor, but there's no one around who can tell us what we're here for. In a certain light, how we all look the same And there's no one in life who can remember ever stood for you So, shame, some try you, couldn't step by you And go 